Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear about the research scientists at Upstate are doing now and in the years to come. Stuart Lowe in biochemistry has some really interesting results where he can reactivate a protein called P53. When a cell starts to walk down a cancer pathway, P53 is turned on to kill the cells. Then we'll hear about the role of a neuroradiologist in stroke care. You treat these people to prevent the stroke from completing or getting larger. And we'll get a first-hand look at the sophisticated first aid station at the New York State Fair. So we can assess them. We can actually do EKGs there as well. Uh, so we can see patients, uh, assess them, and kind of guide them uh, whether they need to go to the hospital or not. All that, a checkup from the neck up, and a visit from our healing muse coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a neuroradiologist explains how she cares for patients who are having a stroke. Then, an emergency physician walks us through the emergency medical care available at the New York State Fair. But first, we'll talk to an Upstate's Vice President for Research about the scientific work that's on the horizon at Upstate. In the studio today is Dr. David Amberg. He's the Vice President for Research at Upstate, and he's also a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. You gave a talk recently to the faculty about the state of research on campus, and one of the things you looked at was research expenditures, and you said that after four or five years of decline, expenditures are up 10%. What does that mean, and why is it positive? Well, research expenditures are one of the easiest ways to track how well your faculty are doing and at obtaining um, funding for, to carry out their research programs. And for us, much of that funding is actually coming from federal agencies, the NIH and the Department of Defense, for example. NIH being the National, National Institute of Health. National Institute of Health, exactly. Okay. And so it's an easy way to track the success. Of course, you know, uh, biomedical research is an expensive endeavor, and so our faculty have to work hard and convince uh, through a peer review process, that their research is value, you know, valuable enough to fund. At, uh, and, of course, those dollars are spent in sort of two ways, what the faculty member can spend and then what the university receives in indirect costs or what are called facilities and uh, fees that we, we obtain. And so the research expenditures are some of those two sort of pots of money. The university uh, has to support that research, keep the lights on is the way we express it, and so that's where the indirect costs come in. And so actually we've seen a, a double-digit growth in our research expenditures for two straight years, and that that vector seems to be moving for into the third straight year after a prior four or five years of pretty dramatic reductions. And uh, that double-digit growth, if it sustains through this year, means that we'll reach probably close to $40 million in research expenditures in the coming year, which would put us at the high water mark when we had a doubling of the NIH budget and, of course, the ERA stimulus package during Obama's years. Since that time, funding at the NIH has actually declined in real dollars when corrected for inflation. And so this is a really quite remarkable achievement 
of our faculty that in that environment to be able to reverse that downward trend and get us back to where we were five years ago. It's That's really going to be good for impressive. the um, community too. Yeah, so if we've tried to calculate what the actual um, economic impact of our research enterprise is, so those are the $40 million in expenditures, but there's a huge amount of support behind uh, that research that the university invests in as well. For about every dollar in support we receive to carry out research here, we spend about another dollar. And then there's a number of other uh, staff that uh, indirectly support that effort. And the impact, we think, to the regional economy, just to the research enterprise of Upstate, is probably a couple hundred million dollars. Wow. Okay. Well, that's also got to um, help you attract other scientists. Yeah. So success, of course, uh, everyone looks at this, and it, it positively affects the uh, reputation of the universe, uh, of the university in general, uh, not just the research enterprise, but the whole university. It helps us track teaching faculty, it helps us track clinicians, as well as, as, well as researchers. Uh, and there's other aspects that we've been investing in at Upstate that have helped us recruit some really world-class people recently. Um, for example, we have strong um, research cores that have state-of-the-art instrumentation. Been quite a bit of investment by the university uh, in giving us really great core facilities that are fairly unique for a university of our size, which is fairly small when you compare us to a Texas A&M and a John Hopkins, for example. Well, let's talk about the main research strengths here at Upstate. Um, what areas are you seeing some interesting research in? Well, we've had traditionally uh, quite strong uh, basic and translational cancer research and a number of very interesting things that are going on in, in that arena. And that's, of course, one of our areas of strategic uh, investment that came out of the recent uh, strategic plan as well. Stuart Lowe in biochemistry has some really interesting results where he can reactivate a protein called P53. And P53 is considered the guardian of the genome. Mm -hmm. So when a cell starts to walk down a cancer pathway, P53 is turned on to kill the cell. So it doesn't go further down that pathway. So and it doesn't turn into cancer. So it doesn't turn into oh. cancer. But when P53 becomes mutated, um, that then the cancer will progress. And it's the most common mutated gene in cancer. And what Stewart has found is he's found a way to reactivate that mutated P53 wow. um, to actually then kill the, that cancerous cell. And so that's a perfect example of how Stewart was working on a very basic element of P53, which is it binds a cofactor called zinc, and it needs just the exact right amount of zinc to fold properly. And he can manipulate that to get a mutant form to refold and then kill those cancer cells. And that's just one example of many here of basic research that's finding a translational um, component to it that uh, is holding quite good promise that it's going to make it to the clinic someday and, and help patients. Neat. And uh, neurosciences? You know, yep, neuroscience is a very strong area for us. About five years ago, we opened this just beautiful facility, the new neuroscience research building. And that building was really designed uh, to have sort of open lab spaces. And if you go to the fourth floor of that building, it's stunning. It's three city blocks long of open 
laboratory space. And the idea is to get all of our neuroscientists from various departments, neuroscience and physiology, ophthalmology, psychiatry, neurology, neurosurgery, get them all together so that they start interacting, collaborating with each other, sharing ideas. And that model is really working. It's also really helping us to recruit some just really world-class people. So people may be aware that we just hired a new dean of our College of Medicine, uh, Julio Licinio. Dr. Licinio and his wife, uh, Molly Wong, are really world-class uh, psychiatric researchers working in depression and metabolic disease. And just recently, we have joining our faculty from the University of Chicago, Chun Yu Liu, as a new Empire Scholar. He's a very uh, world-renowned psychiatric geneticist and joins an already strong uh, psychiatric genetics group within uh, psychiatry that includes Steve Ferrone, who's considered by Thomson Reuters as one of the top 100 scientists in the world. So having that facility, having that concentration, those shared resources, and that collaborative environment is really helping us to recruit some great, great folks. And so neuroscience, both clinically as well as research-wise, is identified in the strategic plan as an area for continued investment and focus. Another area uh, is the Center for Global Health and Translational Science. And this group was founded about five years ago and is currently uh, headed up by Dr. Mark, Mark Paul Hemis, who's uh, in, in our uh, Department of Medicine, the Infectious Disease Group. And that group over the, the last five years has just grown, and the amount of research expenditures they brought in have been partly responsible for a 500% increase in our clinical research expenditures, which is tremendous over three years to have a five-fold increase in clinical research here, which has been a focus of my office and the university. But this group um, currently, in the last grant cycle, put out over $20 million in grant proposals uh, to the DOD, to the NIH, and uh, they'll undoubtedly succeed with some of those. They've moved us into some very interesting clinical trials, the dengue human infection models that they have pioneered, the only group in the world thus far that's been tapped to do those. This is where we we take healthy individuals who are volunteers and using a, an attenu- what's called an attenuated dengue virus, we give them a very mild form of dengue. They get a mild fever, maybe a little eye pain. And that establishes a baseline that becomes a very rapid way to test new vaccines for dengue. And dengue is a huge impact on our warfighters that are overseas. but as you've probably seen in the news, this is nipping at our southern shores as well. Sure. There's other as related viruses. These are all called flaviviruses. The Zika virus has moved into southern this, this Florida. This is the group that's doing Zika vaccine trials too, right? Yeah. So two of the faculty in the center, Stephen Thomas and Chris Polino, are actually on the patent for the Zika vaccine and were um, very responsible when they were at the Army for uh, developing that vaccine. Wow. Well, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate's Vice President for Research, Dr. David Amberg. Well, it wasn't uh, that long ago that Time Magazine had a cover with this microscopic picture, and it says, warning, we are not ready for the next pandemic, which is pretty scary, but is, it, is there some truth to it? 
Yeah, so I think there was there was much learned from the Ebola outbreak in Central Africa and then the Zika outbreak in Brazil. And the lesson was we are not ready. We're not capable of responding quickly enough when there's an opportunity for pandemic. And this is not going to be, these aren't isolated rare instances. They're happening more and more. There's going to be more emerging uh, infectious disease uh, that we need to be worried about. Um, locally, you know, there's a huge outbreak of Lyme disease and a huge increase in tick populations, another area of focus for the Global Health Group. Um, and uh, we've been looking at this and trying to think about, well, okay, our university has a real strength in infectious disease research, vaccines around infectious disease. What do we need to build here so we can sort of be a one-stop shop for researchers and industry to really drive research and development through a continuum, a pipeline continuum from a possible medical solution to actually implementation of that medical solution. And there are many steps in that process, most of which we are now doing. Field surveillance. We have sites in Thailand, Ecuador, and in Africa where we have people doing surveillance. They're sort of the front line looking at what is coming up what kind of emerging infectious disease uh, are happening. Anna Stewart in the uh, Global Health Group is currently in Ecuador and monitoring uh, what's going on down there. That informs possible uh, samples can be uh, collected there. For example, Zika-infected patients brought back to upstate for the basic research to try and develop, for example, a new vaccine. You then have to produce some amounts of those vaccine, and the university is looking at what it might be able to do for example, to build a facility that could produce uh, vaccines and immunotherapy agents, uh, medical solutions. Those vaccines then need to be tested in human subjects. And uh, phase one clinical trials or safety trials, you have to go to phase two and phase three trials. We all do, we do those here and we do those things well. So we have that component um, covered. And then we're actually doing the field work as well to take those vaccines out. Uh, we were recently awarded uh, to do Zika work for the Zika vaccine actually in Ecuador in the field to determine how well that vaccine works to protect individuals. So we're very mindful of what we could do to become part of a more rapid response to emerging infectious disease if we had all the capabilities in-house. And so we're very focused in building that expertise that's here neat. so that we can well, that's do that. exciting. Well, how are things going at the Biotech Accelerator? Uh, the Biotech Accelerator is going great. Uh, Dr. Corona, also chair of pathology, uh, has done a great job down there with Kathy Durden, the director of the Central New York Bioaccelerator. It's at full capacity as far as the uh, the uh, the spaces for we rent to various companies. These are uh, innovators, entrepreneurs that have ideas that they need help. Getting. Yeah, and so the whole idea of the Bioaccelerator is to provide a support structure and uh, a nurturing environment that brings innovators and entrepreneurs in and helps take their ideas to implementation. And Kathy Durden has been running a great series of programs that brings in everything. How do you do a business plan? How do you deal with your intellectual property and protect it? How do you find funders for your company? Uh, and then, of course, the space that helps you drive the science forward. And then we just completed a really beautiful vision of, of Dr. Corona's, which is the Innovation Center on the third floor, which includes a fully functional TED Talk theater 
which is just a beautiful facility and a real resource for the region and is getting a lot of interest in renting it for various events. And then there's a a high-tech garage that has uh, equipment in there that can help. And a lot of the focus here is in medical device development. And then some sort of colliding cloister spaces, they call them uh, the pods, I think, that where sort of the first step of your company is to have a kind of a location to you know, have your internet and your phones and a, a kind of a visible presence within the bioaccelerator. The idea is those develop and those companies develop in those spaces and then move down into one of the, the laboratory spaces in the second and first floors. Well, is this, would you say, a good time to enter the field um, of science? What would you say to high school kids that are um, into chemistry or biology? Would you advise that there's a future for them? I'd say absolutely. You know, I think I have one of the best jobs at the university um, because I get to see just wonderful things. And one of the greatest things about being a scientist and why I was drawn to it is if you're in the lab doing something, you're going to be the first person that knows something in the world, the first person to discover Mm -hmm. something. And when I look back at when I began in science and, you know, a very powerful technique called PCR, Plummer's Chain Reaction, had just been invented when I got into science. And it just revolutionized what we could do in science. But when you look at what we can do now with the instrumentation, the miniaturization, the high throughput, the large data analytics you can do now, um, it's just a very exciting time. Your ability to do things in science and have an impact is just tremendous because of the technology that's available. People may have heard of CRISPR-Cas9. We can now go in and actually edit genomes. CRISPR-Cas9, that's the way to do Yeah, that. it was a system, again, came out of basic research, looking at bacteria and how bacteria protect themselves from invading organisms. Uh, and it was realized by some very smart people at UCSF and MIT that this could be harnessed to actually go in and change genomes in in animals. And, uh, of course, this has some controversy in, in applying it to humans. We have to be careful about the ethical considerations. But it's just one example of the many tools. Microscopy, the advances in microscopy are unreal. We have managed enlightened microscopy to go beyond what were thought the physical, theoretical boundaries of resolution. And of course, when you want to look at things, being able to look at smaller and smaller and smaller things is extremely powerful. And that's very exciting. And we're bringing that technology in a new core to upstate. A new microscopy core is going to have a what's called a super resolution microscope that can get wow. resolution down for light microscopy to 30, 20 nanometers, which the theoretical limit of light microscopy is around 400 nanometers. So it's a tenfold, twentyfold increase in wow. resolution over what the physics said we could do just five years ago. Wow. So it's a very exciting, exciting time to go into science. Wow. Well, thank you so much for being here. My guest has been uh, Dr. David Anberg. He's the Upstate's Vice President for Research. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, the role of a neuroradiologist in stroke care. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A neuroradiologist specializes in abnormalities of the central and peripheral nervous system, including the brain, spine, head and neck, uh, using neuroimaging techniques. Here to talk about the role of a hospital neuroradiologist is Professor of Radiology, Dr. Sylvie Destian. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Now, your work focuses on the nervous system, um, but give us an idea of the types of illnesses or injuries you may be involved in um, diagnosing and treating. Well, Upstate is a level one trauma center, so we see a lot of trauma. From car accidents? Car accidents, falls, um, assaults. Um, We also see brain tumors and tumors that spread to the brain, infections, and obviously stroke. Stroke, right. Um, And what sorts of um, neuroimaging techniques do you use for stroke? Uh, We use CT Mainly, and sometimes MR. So CT is, uh, like people would say, a CAT scan or computerized tomography? Correct, and that uses ionizing radiation. Okay, and then you mentioned MR, that's the... um, Magnetic Magnetic resonance resonance. imaging, which is a different technique. It doesn't use um, radiation, and sometimes um, they're both used... Together? Together. They can be complementary. Okay. Do they show you different things, or you might start with one and then need the other, or do you... Correct. Um, We For stroke, we start with CT, um, but in some centers, there is an emergency stroke uh, MR that can be done. Okay. And are these used mostly for diagnosing and telling you what's going on in the brain, or do they also um, have a role in treatment? Um. For us, it's strictly diagnosis. Okay. So you're a member, um, a neuroradiologist is a member of the stroke team. Walk us through what happens, what your role is, what you do um, if a patient shows up in the emergency department with a suspected stroke. Well, first, EMS notifies the uh, emergency department, the CT tech and the neurologist that they are bringing in a stroke. There's a special stroke pager. So even before an ambulance gets here, correct. You guys are already sort of working on. Correct. Okay. The patient is fast tracked through the emergency department, um, quickly seen by a neurologist. It goes straight to CAT scan, and the CAT scan technologist notifies us that we are getting a stroke code. So we know when we see that name on the list we stop everything else and read the stroke code and contact the stroke neurologist. Because um, stroke time is of the essence. Correct. Really was. Correct. And to be considered um, a comprehensive stroke center, all of these things have to be done with certain time, within certain time parameters. Okay. So the neurologist... If you come in, you see a neurologist within like 15 minutes or something? Correct. Okay. And the CAT scan and interpretation have to be done within 45 minutes. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about stroke um, because there's different types. There's a couple of main types. Correct. So uh, a stroke is when there's some impediment to blood flow in the brain? Correct. And what are the different causes? Um. The most common are when there's a clot in one of the vessels that prevents blood from going further into that vessel. Um, 
Another type is a hemorrhagic stroke that usually occurs uh, from hypertension, high blood pressure. High blood pressure, okay. And um, occasionally people can have scattered strokes in the brain, tiny ones, from atrial fibrillation. Okay, and I've also heard of, um, they call it, say, mini strokes, TIAs? TIAs are strokes that are not completed. A patient may experience symptoms, but they resolve okay. quickly. So trans-ischemic attack. Transient ischemic attack. Transient ischemic attack. Is that um, a signal that the person might have a risk for a, a major yes. stroke? It is. Yes. Okay. So when a person comes into the emergency department with um, symptoms, you don't necessarily know what it, which one they have, right? Correct. Initially. Correct. Um, but does the CT always answer that? Um, no. The CT, what we look for is hemorrhage. And if there is a hemorrhage, then the stroke code so stops because have- you can't give an anticoagulant to someone who already has a hemorrhage. Okay, so they have to be cared for in a certain way, different from if a person comes in and has a clot. Correct. Okay. If we see a clot within a large vessel, the neurolog- we tell the neurologist and they notify the neurointerventionalist who will go in and either um, dissolve the clot or take it out with a basket at the end of a catheter. So the neurointerventionalist, that's um, someone who, who's... They're a surgeon? Um, There are three ways you can be a neurointerventionalist. You can either be a neuroradiologist who's done two extra years in neurointervention. You can also be a neurosurgeon or a neurologist that's done training in um, neurointervention. And actually, we have one of each at Upstate. At Upstate, okay. And so they are able to go in without the traditional cutting Correct. Open. Uh, they use catheters and such. Correct. They put a catheter in the groin and thread it up into the brain, um, usually into the vessel that's blocked, and they can either put medication through that catheter to dissolve the clot or they can uh, pull the clot out. Okay. All right. So um, this, the size of a clot and the location in the brain where the clot is does that determine what gets done for that particular patient? Yes, yes. So are big clots worse than small clots or not necessarily? Um, if you get it out, it's not worse. Oh, you know, just probably but, uh, location but matters more chance then. of a deficit, a larger deficit, is always a risk with a larger clot. Okay. Well, I've got some more questions, but first, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Sylvie Destian, a professor of radiology who is a neuroradiologist. That's a specialty within radiology that focuses on the abnormalities of the central and peripheral nervous system, including the brain, spine, and head and neck using neuroimaging techniques. Are um, the majority of the patients that you care for stroke patients? I mean, we mentioned all of the other types of um, No, I would say that that's just one part of what we do. That's one part. Okay. Well, how did you decide to specialize in neuroradiology? You have to be a radiologist first and then go? Correct. Okay. I did four years. Well, I did an internship and three years of radiology training. Now it's four years of radiology training after an internship. And then I, um, I liked patient care and I liked 
Reading films and neuroradiology at the time that I entered the field offered both. Now we do much less procedure work because of MR, um, and it's kind of morphed into diagnostic neuroradiology and interventional neuroradiology. So we do some procedures, but the the interventional neuroradiologists do most of them. Okay. Well, the patients that are um, having a stroke um, probably have different levels of the ability to communicate um, with the providers that are taking care of them. Yeah, sometimes they just have a facial droop or weakness on one side. Sometimes they're unable to speak, uh, but they can understand. And sometimes they can understand, but can't uh, Can't verbalize or something. So do you have like a standard thing that you say to someone that you're caring for who's got a possible stroke? Well, I don't see the patient. I just see the scan. Okay. Um, The neurologist evaluates the patient. Is the one at the bedside. Yeah. Okay. So you're just looking at the scan and, and communicating with the neurologist then? Correct. Okay. But you can you tell from the scan what you predict is going to be like sort of the outcome for this patient based on what the scan reveals? No, because really? even treatment, different treatments carry different risks and you really don't know. I mean, if you see a large hemorrhagic stroke, uh, the outcome you know is not, not going to be good. Right. Yeah. But some of the others... You some really of the can. others, people walk out with no deficit or minimal deficit, and that's what you want. You treat these people to prevent the stroke from completing or getting larger. Okay. Neat. Well, and um, as I understand it, I mean, this can happen. This is a 24-hour-a-day, obviously, operation at the hospital, and so you could be called in or summoned to look at these films um, quickly at any time. That's right. So, um, okay, let's talk about some of the risk factors for stroke. What are some of the things that could predict that a person might be at risk for stroke? Well, there are multiple risk factors, but the most important is high blood pressure. And all of the other risk factors, with the exception of diabetes, um, which is also a, a risk factor, generally cause high blood pressure. Smoking, uh, recreational drugs such as cocaine and amphetamines can raise your blood pressure tremendously. Um, Obesity, high cholesterol, all of these things will contribute to the risk of having a stroke. So a lot of those like unhealthy lifestyle types of things. Correct. Okay. So uh, how would a person know that they're having a stroke or know that their loved one is having a stroke? What are some of the signs and symptoms to be aware of? Sometimes it's just uh, drooping on one side of the face or people can experience weakness on one side of the body or in a limb. Um, They can experience visual changes. Their speech may be slurred or garbled. They may experience balance problems or they may be generally disoriented. So some of those things or all of those things might be happening. Correct. So if that, if you do notice some of those things, what, what should a person do? Um, if you notice it or someone you're with notices it, the most important thing is to call 911 immediately because quick intervention leads to a better outcome. And like you were saying, you call 911, the ambulance gets there, arrives. They're already in communication with the hospital. Correct. Even before you get there. Correct. So, 
And Jumping in the car and driving the person isn't the thing to do. No, because EMS can do things in the ambulance to help. So they might start an intravenous line? They might start or? an intravenous line. They might give the patient oxygen. Um, things like that can help yeah. already sort of start treating Correct. what you're going to see. Well, interesting. Well, I appreciate you being here and talking about this. My guest has been Professor of Radiology, Dr. Sylvie Destian. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up, hatred and terrorism, or what can we do now? Pay attention and dot, dot, dot. Well, folks, these days there are media reports of widespread hatred and terrorist armies and car bombings and murdering marauders, etc., etc., every day or so. And the sheer frequency of reports makes it seem like we are living in awful, scary times. How to deal with this, short of moving deep into the woods and cutting off all contact with our seemingly potentially dangerous neighbors? Well, to start, it might help a bit to know some facts. In reality, we human beings are harming and enslaving and killing each other much, much less than we did in those, quote, good old days. <laughs> and the further back we go, like in the really, quote, good old days, hundreds of years ago, the worse things were. The terrorists, oftentimes proclaiming themselves agents of their god, sound familiar, would lay siege to a city. And when they starved or burned or whatevered the inhabitants into submission, they'd kill and rape and enslave them willy-nilly, wiping out whole cities of hundreds of thousands of people and then moving on to the next such escapade. Of course, ancient terrorists didn't have radio, TV, and smartphones to broadcast news of their latest nasty deeds. Instead, they advertised their handicraft by sticking the heads of unfortunate victims on poles placed for maximum visibility. But now... In the face of this modern-day 24-7-365 of electronically amplified chaos and terror, how can we protect ourselves and stay calm and carry on? Well, a few suggestions. First, simply don't listen to the bad news so much. Turn it off unless it's relevant to your life and counterbalance it by paying attention to news of the positive. For example, the latest scientific advances saving thousands, nay millions, from pain and early death. Or even remind ourselves 
that we haven't had an all-out world war for 70-plus years. And we're living healthier and longer than ever. But, you know, paying attention to facts only goes so far. But behaving differently connects with deeper brain areas and feelings. So counter the everyday terrorism of racism, ageism, sexism, etc., etc., with courageous kindness, listening to understand, and generous acceptance of others. Remember that those of us who make the most good relationships live the longest and are the happiest by far. Friends and family feel secure for sure. I'm Rich O'Neill. Thanks for checking in. Next up, what happens if you get ill or injured at the New York State Fair? On Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air, on location this week as Central New York prepares for the 2017 New York State Fair. We caught up with Dr. Christian Knudsen, an assistant professor of emergency medicine and the medical director of the infirmary at the New York State Fair. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. The New York State Fair runs this year from August 23rd to Labor Day, and for the vast majority of fairgoers, their time on the fairgrounds will be enjoyable, if uneventful. If the past couple years are predictive, though, about 1,000 people will make their way to the State Fair Infirmary, where they will find physicians and staff from Upstate University Hospital's Emergency Department. So tell us about the infirmary. Is, uh, what, is it like a hospital emergency room? It's more like a, 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 a doctor's clinic. Um, the, state, the medical infirmary uh, has about 13 beds, uh, is staffed by emergency medicine doctors, nurses, I uh, actually have paramedic and paramedic students with us, and we have the ability to do uh, basic care um, and uh, treatment minor injuries. It's not as complete as a mercy department. It's more like an urgent care center. Okay. Do you, um, like x-ray capability? No x-rays. Suturing? Uh, we can suture uh, lacerations and minor wounds. We can do IVs. Um, and assess injuries, uh, but anything requiring more labs or imaging would, would have to go to the hospital. Okay. So, and you do get some serious situations, chest pain or someone who does need to go to the hospital too, but you can stabilize them. Yes, we can assess them. We can actually do EKGs there as well. Uh, so we can see patients, uh, assess them, and kind of guide them uh, whether they need to go to the hospital or not, or if we can uh, say they're safe and get them back to the fair. Okay. Now, are you open when the fair's open? Pretty much. Uh, from 10 in the morning until 11 o'clock at night, uh, we're, we're fully staffed. And whereabouts are you, and how would people find you if they need you? 
I think we're behind the horticulture building um, near the fairway. Um, and if you don't know where that is, I think most of our maps at the fair will have our location listed on it. Uh, or I'm, I assume the uh, uh, staff there should know how to get directions to people. Okay. Now, um, the last couple years, um, the infirmary has handled an average 600 patients plus an additional 400 patients per day um, seeking quality of life items like Tylenol and things of that and nature. Sunscreen. Changing stations, okay. Changing stations and things like that. Um, put that in perspective for us. Is that a lot? Of, how big is that? Is that a lot of patients? It's a lot of. It's a lot of people. Uh, we can get busy some days. It's about three, four patients an hour for us, and and that's as busy as uh, many emergency departments or urgent care clinics. Um, okay. So we we see a lot of people coming through. Well, and even so, though the state fair may have a hundred thousand people mm-hmm. visiting on a day. So you're only seeing a small... A small part of it. But, uh, but if you imagine if the fair has eighty five to 120,000 people a day, that's uh, the, one of the largest cities in, uh, in New York State. Uh, so you can imagine that many people, things are going to happen. And uh, that's what we're there for. Okay. So what are the top reasons people um, end up coming to the infirmary? Are- uh, most often it... Uh, we do see a lot of heat stress um, type injuries. So just not feeling well, uh, lightheaded, woozy, uh, feel like you're going to pass out, nauseous, uh, or just feel sick. Um, those are the most common ones that we see. Uh, we also do see uh, injuries, lacerations, abrasions, bumps and bruises. Uh, accidents happen, and uh, sometimes it happens at the fair. And uh, the nice part is uh, we can see most of those minor injuries and spare people a trip out to, out to the local ERs or urgent care centers and just see them on, on site right there. So um, they can come and get a bandage or mm-hmm. whatever, um, get rehydrated or whatever, and go for, back out? For If you're feeling uh, stressed from the heat, at least it's a, a cool, we have air conditioning, uh, get you out of the sun, uh, give you some time with some, the very easiest is just water, uh, a place to cool off and rest for a little bit. Um, just makes you feel better. If you're really if you're a little sicker than that, we can do IV fluids for for those who need it. Um, if you need more than that, we need to get you to the hospital. Um, but just a little a little low level care and support gets most people feeling a lot better. On those days when it's really really crowded, like on the weekends and mm-hmm. it's really really hot, are you typically busier? We are. From- uh, we see about twenty percent more patients in a day than those days that are are uh, less hot. Uh, so the heat really is a, a factor in people visiting the fair for us. Okay. Well, uh, earlier this year there was a ride malfunction at the Ohio State Fair. Um, it ended up, it killed one man and several other people were injured. So if there was a catastrophe like that on the fairgrounds in Syracuse, walk us through what type of response mm-hmm. we would see. Um, fortunately, the uh, the state police and AMR, uh, the ambulance service who's uh, supporting the fair uh, and the infirmary through our upstate have a disaster plan in place. So if something, God forbid, happens, um, the the state police and the uh, the paramedics from AMR and us know what to do, uh, which is how we're to respond to. Uh, AMR has both ambulances and gators to get to harder to reach places quickly um, and uh, can assess patients and either bring them to the infirmary for minor injuries, or if they need to, uh, take them to local hospitals. Uh, but they have a plan, plan in place with the county to to provide surge capacity or extra manpower if something would happen. Um, there's a, a plan in place. 
So you said gators. What is a gator? Um, those are kind of all-terrain vehicles, six wheels, uh, carry two paramedics, okay. and have a, uh, a space for a stretcher in the back. They look uh, a little like golf carts, but without the... Right. No, yeah. less golf carty, but... Uh, <laughs> but easier uh, to get around. Yeah, make okay. it they're smaller, more compact, and uh, easier to get through crowds and uh, to different places in the, in the, the fair quickly. Okay, good. Well, um, having been uh, at the fair, do you have any advice for people who are headed to the fair in terms of things they can do to keep themselves safe and avoid coming Mm -hmm. to the infirmary? I think first things first, drink plenty of water uh, ahead of time or at the fair. Um, You know, the the heat and the dehydration can sneak up on you sometimes and you think you're doing okay until all of a sudden you feel like you're not. Uh, So keep keep pushing the fluids and uh, be, be careful with the alcohol use as well. Because uh, I can make it dehydrated and sneak up on you as well. And the fluid—that's advice for all ages, mm-hmm. even even kids that yes seem you, like they're energetic. Can, kids can are more resilient than the adults, obviously, but even they need to drink drink some fluids and uh, not just have candy and, and sweets all day. They need some some fluids and uh, and same with the adults and the grandparents too. Okay. Uh, proper footwear uh, would be a big thing too. You're walking all day. You know, you're walking several miles. Might not be used to it. Um, just got to keep your feet safe from, from injury and uh, give you proper support to, to keep you from getting hurt. And you mentioned some people show up at the um, infirmary for sunscreen, but yeah. maybe bring that or put that on before. <laughs> put on ahead of time. It's, it, hopefully we're going to have some beautiful weather and uh, might be a little sunny. So I don't want to get it. We don't see many sunburns at the fair, but I'm sure folks might go home and regret not wearing the sunscreen during the day. <laughs> All right. Well, I think it's important to note that some 70% of the patients you see in the infirmary they're able to be treated and then resume their day at the fair. Yeah, it's a huge number. It's kind of why we're there. It's to to, uh, to help the folks who you know they've paid for the fair. They want to come out and enjoy the the rides and the food and the sights, and uh, we're there to to kind of take care of the minor stuff that that may may derail your day a little bit, but kind of get you back in. Um, I think I think we should also point out the care is free. We don't charge anything. It's uh, free care to the public. Um, so it should be very very little. Uh, hesitancy to come to see us and just either get checked out or get taken yeah, care of. Yeah, that's good to know because I think some people might think, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to have to go and... Didn't bring your insurance card to the fair that day. Didn't bring my insurance card, don't nope. have, you know, don't want to wait in line, but really you get people in and out pretty quick. About 30 minutes. It's, uh, it's quick. Um, and for most of the minor things, yeah, we can take care of that quickly. Uh, some folks do stay a little longer, but we get them back out to enjoy the fair. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk about this with me. Makes me feel safer going to the fair, knowing that I'm covered if something goes wrong there. My guest has been Dr. Christian Knutson. Uh, He's the medical director of the infirmary at the New York State Fair and an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Spoiler alert, I am about to read the beginning of a wonderful short story we received from a Rhode Island professor and writer named James English. Although this opening sounds somewhat sad and depressing, I assure you, the story actually depicts the good fortune that occurs when human resilience, family love, and medicine come together. Here is an excerpt from Left-Sided Neglect. 
Tyler sat beside his mother at her kitchen table and adjusted the hands on the cardboard clock. Her stroke had taken away her clock skills, and the physical therapist had given her a cardboard clock to practice. Tyler adjusted the cardboard fingers to indicate 7.45. You can do it, he said. Of course I can do it, his mother said. What, you think I don't know how to tell time? Left-sided neglect, the neurologist had called it. His mother had no awareness of her left side, even though her ophthalmic exam had revealed that both eyes were healthy. If her left side were going to return, the doctor said, it would come back in the first month, but only if the damage wasn't too severe and her caregivers helped her to tune into her left side. Can you see the big hand just above the eight? Tyler repositioned the cardboard hands so that they said without any doubt, 745. He still couldn't believe his mother's left side was gone. Where, his mother said. Tyler smiled at her. Her facial cream only covered the right half of her face. He remembered those old Dove ads on TV that showed a woman with half her face lathered with creamy soap and the other half with the lesser brand. It was humorous on television, but seeing his mother with a two-toned face made him scared and sad. He'd never felt that way before. He leaned forward at the table, touched the cardboard clock in front of his mother and said, it's quarter to eight, mom. I can play your game, Tyler. She gave him a serene smile, a.m. or p.m. He called his cousin Bonnie for help. She was his mother's favorite niece, an occupational therapist, and lived five minutes away. She had his mother's powder blue eyes, fulsome red hair, and Fitzpatrick feistiness, and she was always game for self-improvement. The summer after Tyler's father died, Bonnie and his mother went on a girls-only trip through Germany, Switzerland, and Austria, and they still said bitte and danke to each other. Now it was two days later, and the three of them sat at his mother's kitchen table, his mother had tipped over the salt shaker by her left side, and a pyramid of salt lay on the blue tablecloth, but she didn't notice it. He leaned over his mother and said, Mom, do you want some lemon sherbet for dessert? Sherbet, that would be nice. His mother still called it sherbet. At least the stroke hadn't changed that. He served three bowls, put them on the table, and carefully slipped a spoon on her left side. She looked at the bowl. What, she said? I eat sherbet with my fingers? The spoon's there. He pointed to her left. If you can't see it, turn your head. His mother waved her right hand at him. What, you think I'm an owl? They ate their sherbet in silence. Outside, on the left side of the house, Tyler noticed rain clouds starting to form. Just before they finished, his mother looked up from her bowl and pointed her spoon at him. Her light blue eyes beamed with emptiness. Tyler, did you hide my checkbook? It's here, Mom. He pointed at the slender pad with the green cover, which sat farther to her left, near the knoll of salt. Where, she said. Maybe he was losing his perspective, but it sounded like you're lying, Tyler. Here, he put her hand on the checkbook, but he didn't move it. His mother pointed the spoon at his nose. You're lying, Tyler. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, 
Learn about a planned research center for autoimmune and inflammatory diseases. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.